0: Hello and welcome to Life with Ed, the podcast. I'm Julia Wirth, your host, a registered dietitian in New Haven, Connecticut. And I am so excited to welcome you to episode five of the second season. Um, today, I'm welcoming back a guest that was in the first season back in like September of 2019. Uh, her name is Oriana LaFlem. You might have remembered her from the NIDA Walk. She works a lot with NIDA, which is the National Eating Disorder Association. She leads, you know, body positivity groups and um she has run the the Fairfield County, Connecticut walk, as well as she is a eating disorder recovery coach. And that's sort of how we've reconnected and that's where this podcast is gonna go. So she, you know, goes into homes and works on the the little things that dietitians, doctors, therapists like don't have time to do and, and honestly don't know that much about considering the fact that we are not normally inside our patients homes So Oriana is going to talk all about the difference having a coach can make, especially for families. A lot of times coaches are thought of more as for adults that have eating disorders. We had Molly um, Burnley on the podcast uh, during season one, and she talked about coaches and how for some people that is just a great way to keep themselves accountable, and that's definitely true. Uh, But Oriana is going to go a little bit deeper on what coaches can do, especially for families, and just the the difference a coach can make in a treatment team. And being on a treatment team with Oriana, coaches are definitely invaluable. I know that uh, firsthand for sure. So I hope you'll enjoy this episode. And again, if you have any questions, comments, ideas for guests or other suggestions for the show, please feel free to email me at worth, W-E-R-T-H, your wild nutrition at gmail.com. And without any further ado, here is Oriana LaFlem. All right. Welcome to the show, Oriana. So great to have you. Thanks so much,
1: Julia, for having me today.
0: Yeah. It's awesome to to speak with you outside of our typical um, client discussions. Um, I'd love it if you could introduce yourself to my listeners, you know, just who you are, what you do and, you know, how you work in the eating disorder field.
1: Sure. So um, my name is Oriana Laflamme and I am an eating disorder recovery coach certified mm-hmm. by Carolyn Costin. And also I have a private practice. I also consult with multiple different treatment centers in the area and also collaborate with a lot of universities in the area and help mm-hmm. that, that population and community as well. I also volunteer on the Need a help line. Mm -hmm. during the week. And I'm also an ANAD support group leader. So, and an advocate as well for the Eating Disorders Coalition.
0: You do so much from like coaching individuals to consulting to just the volunteering. It's awesome. And I think, you know, listeners can go back and listen to my first episode in, in season one that you were on. And the, the need a walk, obviously that I was at, um, you come from a background of having your own eating disorder. Is that Mm -hmm. correct? Yeah. Yes.
1: So I have lived experience.
0: Yeah. So this has been your life for a long time.
1: And my passion for sure. And, and I feel like it's a sphere of influence working one-on-one with clients. I love that work. And also giving talks to groups of over 200 people where I can impact a a larger community and population. I think each step forward is definitely a step in the right direction.
0: Yeah, exactly. Me too. So I got the one-on-one and the podcast and the parent group and all that. So, um, so I just want to really focus today on your position as a recovery coach because that's something that isn't in the typical, you know, um treatment team. When people think of a treatment team, they think, you know, a doctor, a therapist, a dietitian, sometimes, you know, specialist doctors, if there's some other thing going on, like a GI specialist or something. Um, sure. But recovery coaches haven't been part of that like traditional team. Um, but they are becoming more common. And I'd love to hear, you know, from you, like what really is a coach Mm -hmm. and how can they supplement treatment for, for someone?
1: That's a great question. And they are becoming more popular and we are seeing them in treatment centers and also in private practices, like myself, and, and in both situations. I also do workshops and such as a recovery coach in different environments as well. But in general, a recovery coach is typically an extension of a client's treatment team. So as you mentioned, you have, you may have your different eating disorder providers, but it's really supporting the nutritional and therapeutic recovery goals for each client. And so a coach is someone who supports their client in a variety of ways and provides a source of support between treatment team meetings to support them through the tough times and also to celebrate their successes as they progress in their recovery.
0: Mm -hmm.
1: It's really important. Julia, I think to establish the trust and build rapport with each client. And the one thing that I was really passionate about, you did mention my history and my lived experience with an eating disorder. I felt like there was a gap between I saw my provider. I saw my therapist. I saw my dietitian. Yeah. I saw my medical providers. I got my meal plan. I came home and I froze. Yeah. And yeah. nobody knew what to say to me in my family, nobody really understood. And I would go from meal and just, you know, go through the motions and really without, you know, with my family trying to be as supportive as they could be, certainly, and my treatment team when they were available. But I felt like there was a gap in terms of Mm. things that because my eating disorder hit a little bit later in life, Mm -hmm. And I felt like there was a gap in terms of just the experiential aspects. So eating a meal with someone who understands and can normalize eating for, for me, I felt like there was a void there.
0: Also doing
1: grocery shopping and cooking and restaurant outings, all those things that really were important, but nobody could really help me with them. Mm-hmm. And I do remember my dietitian did one outing with me. Yeah, and it was literally transformational.
0: Oh, that's awesome.
1: Yeah, so yeah. coaches do that work, and it's kind of—I call it—kind um, kind of getting the support you need outside of the treatment team walls mm-hmm. when yeah. you need it.
0: I so a lot of what you just described, like the eating a meal with you know, someone who is sort of a provider, right? Like, and um, having that support during the challenging times, like the grocery shopping and the, the actual events, I think of that happening on some level in treatment centers, right? Like, you know, when you're in a treatment center, you eat meals with you know, everybody—it's like dietitians there, therapists there, like the whole team is there. Sure. And there's a ton of support, but then you go home, and that all goes away. Like what you were describing—like you're going to these outpatient appointments, and you're talking about, like, theoretically, how is lunch gonna go? What what are you gonna do at lunch? And then you get to lunch, and you're like, "Well, here I am, alone with my food," and there, there's that gap, right? So, it's a really good point to. To me, I think of it as like bringing some of that extra support you get in treatment centers home. Is that a valid way to put it?
1: Yeah. Yeah. And there are a lot of virtual um, providers coming up these days, which is Mm -hmm. awesome because 70% of the country doesn't have access to treatment. So the virtual Mm -hmm. options are definitely popping up and they are a great solution. What I personally am dedicated to and passionate about as a coach is going in and being in the home and getting yeah. a feeling for that. And that's the other aspect that coaches bring to the table as well. Our goal is to really support the nutritional goals by the dietitian mm-hmm. and also the therapeutic goals of the treatment team. Mm-hmm. So we are able, we're in the home, we're actually seeing the environment and we're able to bring that information back to the treatment team so they can adjust accordingly. And then we can all send a unified message to the client so that Mm -hmm. they, they can't, they can't really go between different providers saying different things. We're all together, we're unified and we're kind of providing a circle of support, giving them the same messaging.
0: I think it's, it's such a needed level of care, like for people, because the step down from treatment centers to being outpatient at home is, is crazy. Like that's when I see clients for the most part, right? Like they come out of Walden or CFD or, or Princeton or wherever they have been. And I start seeing them and it's like, suddenly their whole world has changed. They're alone a lot or they're with their family a lot, which they haven't been. And there's n- no one on the treatment team who's like seeing what life is really like, you know, and that coach aspect where you do go in person, like the virtual ones, obviously that's great if you can't get it in-person, but I think like the clients we share together, it's so valuable to hear from you what their life is like literally like, because we don't live virtual lives.
1: Absolutely. Yeah. That's yeah. a different and definitely, I, I always feel strongly. Sometimes I will do a hybrid if, you know, mm-hmm. in, in situations if a client can't meet in person or if it's just more convenient, if it's a snack session and they may live a, a far distance,
0: mm-hmm. doing a
1: hybrid. But I'm always really, really um, passionate and concerned about the first few sessions because that's where you build the rapport and the trust. And honestly, mm-hmm. Julia, if a client doesn't trust me they're not going to listen to a thing that i say
0: yeah and that's true of a dietitian or a therapist as well right but it's you're in the real world with them versus like the the special like 30 to 60 minutes they get with the dietitian or the therapist right um so if they don't trust you it's like that meal is going to be really really hard.
1: Absolutely. Yeah. So in summary, really a coach works with the treatment team. We work kind of for the treatment team and we work Mm -hmm. for the client to help the client repair their relationship and with their bodies and make peace with food. Mm -hmm.
0: So I did an episode with a recovery coach back um, in season one, like more than a year ago, and she mostly worked with adults Um, and that's sort of how I had thought about recovery coaches, you know, like working with adult patients who are maybe, maybe they don't have a spouse or a significant other to help them as a child might with parents, um, in the home. Right. And so I had thought like, okay, a recovery coach is like giving this person more tangible, like goals and tasks and really working with adults that don't have at home support as much. Sure but I've seen you work with kids and teens, and that's something that I had never thought of before. Um, And I think a lot of people who listen to this podcast are parents trying to figure out how to best help their child. So could you talk about like the types of patients you see and how specifically for kids and teens, a recovery coach can be important as well?
1: Sure. So clients can benefit from coaching, usually um, having at least one eating disorder provider generally Mm -hmm. and that's really the best client they and one thing I do as a coach is I also put treatment teams together so if they don't have a treatment team and they're coming to me and the it might be the first time they were just diagnosed and the parents in the adolescent they don't know what to do they don't really honestly it's really can be overwhelming. So mm-hmm. I also help put treatment teams together and you know try to find the the fit with the personality of the child and the family and also the providers. Mm-hmm. So in that way a coach can and my services can benefit in, in that aspect. Um, and also just generally I think having adolescents and parents, what you mentioned, you had spoken to somebody with adults. I also work with university students and adults. The interesting mm-hmm. thing and the dynamic with adolescents is the parents. So if you have yeah. one one client, you really have potentially three.
0: Yeah, or like a whole family, <laughs> all the siblings too. Exactly,
1: yeah. exactly. So it's trying to navigate that. Um, dynamic and also bringing the parents in in an appropriate way and also creating some sense of autonomy where the child can trust again that that rapport and that trust is so important and so what i usually ask parents is in the beginning that I will meet with them and we'll talk about goals and we'll all meet together and we do a session all together. And then I ask for the first few sessions if if they're meal sessions, which they usually are with adolescents, Mm -hmm. is for me to eat with the adolescent together. Mm -hmm. And this way I can kind of, sometimes they feel more comfortable opening up and it just brings a different dynamic to the table. Mm
0: -hmm. And then
1: also letting them know that we were I'm not going to be there forever. And mm. this work is really going to be done by their parents. And so then I do coach the parents and transition over to them yeah. because they're the ones who ultimately Fair. are Fair. going to be the ones caring for their child. And so we bring, I usually bring the parents in and keep them up to date and give them appropriate updates as, you know, as needed. And as much as they want to communicate, we'll communicate with them and they can be a a huge ally and source Mm -hmm. of support in the process as well.
0: Yeah. One thing that like you just said, and then I've been thinking about with coaches is that parents are always looking for the like how to guide, right? Like, I feel like whenever I talk to parents and one of the reasons I started the parent support program in my practice is because parents are always asking me all these questions of like, but how do I get them to eat? How do I get them to, you know, sit through a meal? How do I get them to do all these nutrition goals that we're setting? Right. And you know, the way you just described how you support an adolescent and their parents, it's almost like you're showing the parents like, hey, here are some, some methods that can help, right? Like ways to encourage or ways to be supportive without being overbearing or, or whatever it is for that family.
1: Exactly. So it's really teaching first the adolescent, the coping skills and the strategies to get through the meals and mm-hmm. be able to accept that. And then also giving them, the parents, those tools and building that toolkit. So they together can have a successful meal because that is really what we want in the end.
0: Yeah. And we want like a lasting recovery. I think about so many kids and adults, but like teens in particular that are like in and out of treatment centers. It's like they go to a treatment center. They supposedly get better, right? Weight restore. They seem to be doing fine. And then they go home and relapse and fall apart all over again. And it's because that like home environment hasn't changed, right? Or they haven't learned how to use the coping skills. They know how to use in treatment at home, right? Because it's different. So I think of you know, having a really good treatment team that has maybe a coach as part of it in outpatient, like maybe that way to have a lasting recovery for kids.
1: Absolutely. And we've seen so much success with, with adolescents and that environment and just sustainability, like you said. Mm -hmm.
0: Yeah. So I guess my, my thought in the back of my head is like, parents are always like, really, do I need to pay for another thing? And I'm like, well, maybe maybe it's less time in treatment overall. Um, if you do coaching or you have both a therapist and a dietitian, right? I see people always trying to be like, you're kind of both. And I'm like, nope, no, I'm not. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So just, just a thought about that. Um, what do you want parents to know? Like when you go into working with a child or an adolescent or even a college student, like, what do you wish parents knew?
1: So, there are a lot of things, honestly. That yeah, I
0: know. I, I, I wish par-
1: I, I, this, this is one area where I literally could probably, we could re- collectively write a book on this one.
0: Yeah, um, maybe we should. We'll get on that. <laughs>
1: <laughs> but parents are, they have so much information and about their child and they know their child inside and out. But when they have an eating disorder, it's almost like it's not their child anymore.
0: -hmm. And they don't
1: know what to do. And so I think the important thing, the first thing that I always tell parents is it's not your fault. Yeah. So eating disorders are biological, psychological, social disorders. And that basically means that they might have a biological predisposition combined with maybe a psychological. Co-occurring conditions such as depression, anxiety is a big contributor to eating disorders, especially during the pandemic, which we've seen. It could be trauma. And then there's also a social and cultural aspect to it. So an example and those three things coming together cause the perfect or what I like to call the imperfect storm because there's nothing perfect about it.
0: Yeah, it's, it's awful.
1: Yeah. Yeah. So an example would be a child that has a genetic predisposition and they may not go on to get an eating disorder. However, Mm -hmm. if they do have, let's say, heightened anxiety, maybe Mm -hmm. they're in school or they're going through a situation and they have high anxiety or they're going through a period of depression, and then the societal cultural aspect where maybe on social media today we're finding bullying weight shaming all of those things and sensitive kids sometimes pick up on that and that could just be the imperfect storm that comes mm-hmm. together so the first thing that I would say to parents is it's not your fault
0: mm-hmm. Is there anything like when you go into homes or you have that first meal with, with the whole family that you're like on the lookout for ever as like, Oh, this is, this could be something that's making things more challenging for a family or easier for a family.
1: That's a great question. So typically it's a lot of what parents might or might not be saying Mm -hmm. And so one of the things that I also feel strongly about with parents is it's kind of like, what's important is when you get on an airplane and Mm -hmm. they close the doors and the flight attendants come out and they start to give their spiel. And what do they say about the masks that come down?
0: That like the parent puts them on first, right?
1: Exactly. And parents can only support their children as much as they're supported And eating disorders are, as I previously mentioned, if they're first diagnosed or even if it's your fourth time in treatment, Mm -hmm. if the parent wasn't involved in that, like you said, if they're in a bubble and they're not involved in the family aspects and the educational awareness or have their own support group or support system, Mm -hmm. then it's really hard for them to get the education and the knowledge, it's not something we're born with as parents to know yeah. about eating disorders. Yeah, so a or, lot of times, or
0: anything, to be
1: honest. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. Where's that handbook, right? Yeah. So typically, I'll look for maybe some language that a parent might think that they're saying that is, is helping their child. But really, I see the child rolling their eyes. Mm -hmm. And, like, oh my goodness, mom just said, Well, for breakfast, Jane ate a huge piece of whatever, yeah, you know, and yeah, five waffles, and it was such a big breakfast. And to the child, they're hearing big, huge, and, and really, so it's just really kind of tweaking that and just the educational aspects, which I do after the session we'll talk to parents and I usually do incorporate in a monthly plan with with my services not only do I support the child but the parents as well
0: Mm -hmm. so I'll
1: have like two 30-minute sessions in a month with the parents and say like here's what I've noticed and this is some areas where you wouldn't know Mm -hmm. What to say or what not to say, or I noticed or picked up on when you said this, your daughter or child kind of you know rolled their eyes or made a comment or you know said something. And again, I don't violate the trust of the adolescent, Mm -hmm. but also want to give the parents the information that they need. Again, it's going to go back; the ball is going to go back into their court, so they need that information.
0: Yeah. I, I think like there's some things as a dietitian that I'm always on the lookout for, especially during like an initial intake, you know, like I, I always want to know, does the family actually eat family meals or not? You know, where, where are we starting with from that? And I want to know, you know, are the parents on a diet or do they not eat certain foods? Like, are they restricting certain groups or things like those, those sorts of family I don't know. I don't know what to call it, but like those instances are definitely things that are big, like flags to me as like, well, we're going to have to potentially change that or talk about that for like actually everyone in the family to, to recover.
1: Absolutely. I feel really strongly about family meals and there's so much research about just not only eating disorders, but depression, drug abuse, addiction, Um, how family meals, even if you have to, if your child, if you have multiple children and they're playing different sports, if you can find a time that is conducive to everyone,
0: Mm -hmm. I'm a
1: huge, huge supporter of family meals. Yeah. And it may be different For families. They may not have done it before. Everybody's picking and going on the run. Mm -hmm. I think the best thing a parent can do is model normalized eating. And that's what I initially do. Yeah. I eat what exactly what the client eats. I normalize, try to normalize and be a model for them. Mm -hmm. But also, as you mentioned, the family meals, which I really think that can be a challenge for kids. And eating disorder thoughts can be strong. So eating meals unsupervised, I think is definitely a red flag eating yeah. meals in bedrooms.
0: Yeah. The number of clients who tell me how I do better in my bedroom is like through the roof and I'm like, no, you don't no. like, no, it's not better. Please go downstairs or on the same floor, wherever it is.
1: Exactly. And there are different things that parents can do to kind of help facilitate that. So a family, I, I would also say, don't make mealtime a battlefield and a struggle. So maybe you plan your meals in advance when it's not around a mealtime. So your child knows what's coming and If they're at a point in their recovery where they can be included in that process, the better because now they have Mm buy-in
0: and they're part of
1: that process and they feel, they have a sense of control. And a lot of times what you can do with children and adolescents is you can give them a sense of control by saying, even though you're really not giving them control, you're Mm -hmm. saying, well, we can either have X food, or we can have Y food. And the child would probably not even be thinking of having either of those foods, but you're giving them the choice and they're thinking, oh, I have a choice now. Yeah. And so that's really important as well. And if you're at the family dinner table and it's new to you, I would say, go out, you know, go to Amazon, get some conversation starters and put it on the table (laughs) that don't
0: have to do with food
1: (laughs) yeah exactly play a trivia game bring soul back to food bring the -hmm. relationship with food and the enjoyment back to food and that's not going to happen overnight we're not Mm -hmm. expecting that to happen overnight but there are things that you can do to definitely make it bring that soul and that relationship back so that it's enjoyable for the family. And, and really a lot of times I'm sure you see this too, Julia, kids, although parents may think they're being pushed away, their eating disorder, that's their eating disorder, part of them. Mm -hmm. And they're really saying, mom, dad, help me fight this. Yeah. I I can't do it alone. I need your help.
0: Yeah. I, I couldn't agree with that more. Like I had a therapist on the podcast uh, a couple weeks ago and we were talking about, you know, what can parents do to be, um, you know, to straddle that line between like supportive, but like firm, but like, you know, not really a friend, but like the kid trusts them, you know, that like really challenging line of like, parents (laughs) that you live the whole time, even with the kid, not having an eating disorder. Right. And I just think it's so important for parents to remember that they need to give their child, like hold their child to expectations and like not, not allow the eating disorder to run their lives. And also remember that like, just like they like having you know, the knowledge that someone is on their team or supportive of them or helping them. Like when you're holding your kid to a high expectation and being more firm than just like giving them everything they want, that, that is love. Like that comes across as caring and like you're on their team and you're rooting for them because you expect, you know, the good thing from them. Um, absolutely.
1: And it's, it's like when, when they were toddlers, Right, Right. having a toddler,
0: I think about this all the time. (laughs) Yeah,
1: yeah, and and they want boundaries. They want to know what structure, what uh, that they're going to have consistency. That yeah, that mom and dad are going to be there, and so that doesn't necessarily go away. They still want to see that consistency, and you know, going along with that, another thing parents can do is if you're if you're divided on your treatment approach philosophically, have those conversations outside, in the car, not yeah. in the house, yeah. not in front of your child. Um, have those debates or arguments, whatever they might be, because right. it does test the mettle of every single family. Yeah. It's, it's a really insidious illness, sadly. And it does test the metal of parents, but we know divide and conquer. And it goes back to the toddler and the teenager mm-hmm. that, well, if I can divide mom and dad, then I'm going to go to the parent who's going to give it to me.
0: Right. And Definitely. so
1: a unified front for parents is really important, even if you have to fake it at first.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I like, I think having a toddler has been one of the best things for, um, me understanding where the parents of my clients really are. Cause I'm like, you know, I know you just want to give everything to them because you love them so much, right? Like, and you just want to make their world perfect and everything, but it's like, that doesn't actually help them because they're not learning how to not do the bad behavior.
1: Absolutely. I agree.
0: Yeah. So any final thoughts or things you really want parents to know and understand, um, about coaching, about what coaches can do and about, you know, this journey through eating disorder treatment in general.
1: So I think never lose hope, Mm -hmm. hope springs eternal. And I think that children are looking in our eyes Mm -hmm. and any caregiver, whatever age, the, the person who's impacted is looking at our eyes to, to see how they're doing. So never lose hope. And always, in order to keep going, support yourself. You can, again, you can belong to a support group. You can go online and find online support groups for parents. I think that's super important to have that That lifeline, and to know your go-to people that are going to be there and supportive for for the parents as well, because the it's all a lot of times I feel like a lot of the focus is on the child, and they're getting all the treatment, Mm -hmm. and the parents are just don't know what to do.
0: Yeah, no, definitely.
1: And, And so I think the more that they can feel connected in a community that they feel is a safe space to talk to others is really important and valuable. And really just making mealtime comfortable because it may not be for your child. I always like to back end when I do meal support with clients, make a cozy spot in your house or Mm -hmm. have an activity. Maybe it's going for a you know, a leisurely walk or watching a sunset Mm -hmm. or having your child and yourself create a cozy little nook in the house where you can watch a movie after a hard meal, something to distract them because the time does pass. And as we know, you're going to see a different child at a different time, their eating Mm -hmm. disorder might be coming out and coming to the table or it might be your child. Yeah. So, but that time does definitely pass. And so the more we can distract, I always like to do some distracting activity after a more challenging meal. Mm-hmm. But um, in terms of coaching, that's where really coaches come in and can do that that work. And And parents can get exhausted. It's exhausting yeah. work.
0: I talk about compassion fatigue like all the time in the support group because it's it is exhausting to be constantly supporting uh, someone with an eating disorder.
1: It is, and the one thing that a coach does that I don't think I brought out was, in addition to all the experiential things, it's really I. I'll, And most coaches will have their clients text them if they're having a hard time. It's kind of like their SOS button. Yeah. I'm having a hard time. I'm kind of struggling right now. Mom and dad don't get it. Can you help me? Mm -hmm. And I would rather have them turn to me instead of their eating disorder. And so I have them text me. And at first they typically some people, it's easier for them to reach out. And yeah. if I see that they're kind of not the type to reach out initially. I'll, I'll reach out with an encouraging message each day or just, you know, check in. I always check in at least an hour after meals mm-hmm. with them and also make sure that mom and dad and the other siblings in the family are doing okay. Yeah. So it's really about a lot about support and you know, giving that additional scaffolding to not only the child, but the family overall.
0: Awesome. Well, that was really helpful and hopefully informative for a lot of people. Um, I'm curious in the last like two years, since I spoke to you, has your favorite food changed?
1: Chocolate.
0: Still chocolate. (laughs) Still chocolate. (laughs) Well, it's good. It's consistent. Any like (laughs) Any any particular type of chocolate?
1: Dark chocolate.
0: Okay, just like the squares.
1: Um, squares also. Well, my absolute favorite is chocolate covered strawberries.
0: Oh, okay. Yeah, good. Truffles, chocolate
1: truffles. Love chocolate truffles. But yeah, that's probably my that's that's my favorite dessert. I would say.
0: Yeah, I mean it's so good. I don't understand the people who don't like chocolate. I'm I i do not know.
1: Yeah. But and this is a this is also another great tip for parents too. This time of year, a lot of times, um, with drinking calories, we know oh yeah, it's that's a hard one for for kids. And right now, hot chocolate brings back, you know, sometimes really fond memories of their childhood. Yeah. And yeah, I love hot chocolate.
0: It's so I love good. chocolate.
1: And so right. <laughs> I always say um, to clients, you know, if you don't like milk and you have milk there, then do you like hot chocolate? Right. If they say, yes. I'm like, go Let's ahead and make do some hot chocolate. Yeah. Throw a marshmallow yeah. in it. And
0: that is such a good idea. A day. Yeah. Do you have any leftover from Christmas? Um, <laughs> <laughs> awesome. Well, thank you so much, Oriana. This was great to have you on again.
1: Yeah. Well, thanks for having me again, Julie. I really appreciate it.
0: Of course.